0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 271 Twilight Cities with Catherine Pangonis. Today is an interview with author Catherine Pangonis about her new book, Twilight Cities Lost Capitals of the Mediterranean. You may remember Catherine from episode 238, where we spoke about her previous book, Queens of Jerusalem. She also returned to talk about the devastating earthquakes that hit Turkey in February 2023. In Twilight Cities, she travels to Tyre, Carthage, Syracuse, Ravenna, and Antioch to tell the stories of these forgotten capitals and to experience what remains today. This book is something I think you'll all be interested in. The history of these places is so fascinating, and Catherine takes you through their heyday, pre the takeover by Rome and then Constantinople, But then she rolls into the Roman, Byzantine, Islamic, and Crusader eras. So you get a whole potted history of the place. And if, like me, you dream about Mediterranean holidays, where you could actually visit some of the places from your history books, then this is definitely for you. Your standard guidebook won't tell you where to find the ruins, the lost treasures, and the hills where heroes once stood. So thank God Catherine is here to help. In the interview, I ask her to skip the stuff that we know well, um, which she does cover in the book, and instead to tell us about the things that are less familiar, and also to talk about what you can see today. Here's the interview. Catherine Bangonis, welcome back to the History of Byzantium.
1: Thank you for having me. Excited to be here.
0: I'm excited to talk to you because uh, this book is right up my street, and i uh, I, is, reading it it just made me think that i am one of those people who if something exciting happened in a spot around the mediterranean i am excited to be there even if there's just a pile of rubble uh, left and i get the sense that you are the same uh, so i will be asking you all about uh what what is left in these lost capitals of the mediterranean because that's what we're here to talk about your book twilight cities um tell the listeners uh why you decided to write this book
1: Oh, well, thank you. Um, That is a good question. Why did I decide to write this book? I mean, the short answer is that my publishers made me, but <laughs> the long answer is that the long answer is quite long. But it started years ago, just when I'd finished my undergraduate degree. And I went sailing with some friends in Sicily. And we got caught in a really awful storm. Um, because my friend who was skippering, was a bit negligent, and we we all went to sleep on the boat, a bit tipsy, and then woke up to sort of hurricane force winds. Very much, we're in the Aeolian Islands, so it's very much the fury of Aeolus. And our engine broke. The main, you know, the we lost both. Both our anchor chains snapped. We had to do oh a fall, and we we ended up having to stop in Syracuse or Syracuse on the south southeast coast of Sicily for at least twenty four hours. I think maybe, you know, uh, at least 24 hours while some urgent repairs were made and we replaced the anchor chain and all this stuff. And I'd never even heard of Syracuse. And this was what really shocked me. You know, I was really passionate about history and we just stopped in this Mediterranean city, which I knew I didn't expect anything of it. And I just sort of was trying to get away from really irritating crewmates. I was, you know, we'd just been through a crisis together. They were all very annoying. Um, And just walking around the city by myself. I was just blown away by all the different eras and regimes you could see written in the architecture of the city, you know, from class, you know, from... I mean, the Duomo of Syracuse in particular is, is such an interesting building because it was originally built as a temple of Athena. And so you step by the original Corinthian settlers who founded the, the, the Greek city of Syracuse in Sicily. And so you see these amazing Doric columns still visible in the walls of this cathedral because they just built the cathedral around around the remains of the ancient temple and so it's been a place of worship pretty much continuously for two thousand three thousand years and it's just so there's so I was really blown away by this and I and the city you know has as many layers of history as Rome and they're evident everywhere but with far fewer tourists and I was sort of how how has the city escaped my notice how have I not come across this city in my studies this is just such a gap so that's sort of where that idea started. And that actually was what led me to do my master's in sort of Mediterranean, Middle East and history, that experience. And then years later, I was researching my first book, Queens of Jerusalem, which I you kindly had me on to discuss previously. And in the course of researching that book, I had a similar experience with two other cities that I visited, which were Tyre and Antioch. And obviously I'd heard of these places. You know, I visited them for research because I'd read about them. But again, in Tyre and Antioch, I was, again, blown away by these layers upon layers of history and just the sense of this lingering legacy of greatness, but that has been completely eroded and we, nev- we never think about. So, you know, we, I never studied, you know, Hellenistic or Roman Antioch, you know, just it never came up really. And the same for Tyre, like you sort of heard of Tyre, especially people christians or jewish people who are familiar with the old testament you'll hear mentions of tyre you know scattered throughout the old testament and or you know ancient chronicles and you know classical literature but you don't really know much about it and then you go to this place and you realize that you're actually standing in one of the the, the remains of one of the great metropolises of antiquity and it's just like wow you know and why haven't we learned more about this i wanted to learn more um, and for each of these places there's no real sort of accessible history of them Syracuse is a bit different there are a couple of books that deal with the history of Syracuse but for Tyre and Antioch actually getting to the history was quite tough and I just thought um, and I spoke to my publishers about this I originally said I wanted to do a book on just a book on Syracuse actually and then I mentioned these other two places and they said well can you bring them together with some other cities and do do this sort of book and it actually came together really well because each of these cities sort of had its apogee its sort of golden age in different periods so in the end what this book became or tried to become was a sort of alternative history of the Mediterranean but through the lens of these less well-known capitals and I hope it I hope I pulled it off but that that was the intention and also I just wanted an excuse to spend two or three years uh hanging out in beautiful forgotten places around the Mediterranean which was a total joy I have to say <laughs> so yeah that that's why and that's what what the aim was.
0: That's what that's what I loved about the book was the combination of the history with um, what it's like to be there now um, and the travel aspect of it. Um, and I think listeners to this podcast will, uh, it'll chime with them because Rome and then Constantinople just kind of take over the world. But we all know the stories before they became preeminent were filled with Mediterranean city-states, you know, fighting with each other. Um, so... Yeah. Let's go through. Let's go through these cities and just um, talk about them a little bit. We'll go in the order they come in the book. Um, so Tyre, uh, which is in modern Lebanon, uh, is the first city. And in not too long ago, in the podcast, we were there with the Third Crusade. It was the the one seaport which the um, Crusaders hung on to when Saladin swept them out of Jerusalem. And I suspect most listeners will remember uh tyre holding up alexander the great long long before that so um hopefully that's reminded people of tyre but um w- when would you say tyre's golden age was
1: so generally speaking tyre's golden age is in the bronze age sort of 916 uh, the, people will say the golden age of tyre was under the reign of king hiram a phoenician king so 969 to 32 bc um and hiram is a contemporary of solomon um and it's you know there's these sort of famous anecdotes that Hiram and Solomon were sort of pen pals who exchanged puzzles and had little comp- logic contests which um Solomon tended to win i think but i'd really love to know more about those but they're just fleeting references um and yes again Hiram and Solomon they were contemporaries and they helped each other out and it was and Hiram sent phoenician master craftsmen to build solomon's temple in jerusalem so it's that sort of biblical period in the bronze age um and i have a real soft spot for tyre it's one of uh, my favorite cities that i wrote about because i've been living in lebanon for the past two and a half years and tyre is just my my favorite place and i've spent of all the cities that i wrote about in this book i've spent the most time there and it is amazing because you've mentioned Alexander siege tyre started so in the ancient times, when Hiram was king, Tyre was an island city off the coast of Lebanon. And there are all these ancient sources that refer, you know, from the, I think, the Anastasi Papyrus, Amarna Tablets and, and later Roman sources who write about Tyre as a city in the sea and describe these amazing white walls of stone rising directly out of the waves. Apparently it was it really was one of the most stunning places in antiquity, it took the breath away from travellers and chroniclers who went there. And it was so beautiful and so famous in ancient times that actually Herodotus went as a tourist, if you like. He travelled from Halicarnassus to, to Tyre in Phoenicia, he says, the, on the on the Levantine coast of Phoenician city. Um, that was famed for its Temple of Heracles, and the Temple of Heracles is actually the Temple of Melchart. Her- Melchart was the patron god of Tyre, the patron deity of the city and mythologically the founder of the city. And he became becomes conflated with Heracles and sort of the Hellenistic world and Roman culture. So they, we sort of call him Heracles hyphen Melchart, and sometimes Heracles refers to Melchart, sometimes not. And the temple that Herodotus visited and wrote about, he describes as being sort of a wondrous beauty with this you know, amazingly ornate decorations, and already 2,300 years old by the time that Herodotus visits it. he describes these two these two columns in the center of the temple one made of pure gold and one made of emerald that sort of glows in the darkness so this is the sort of wealth of tyre that we're talking about during its golden age during its it's during antiquity it became incredibly wealthy as the city that traded that built they were master shipbuilders and they they had access to cedar wood from mount lebanon which is brilliant brilliant wood for boats And they built the navies for Egypt and other empires. They were the master seafarers, master navigators. They created the trade routes across the Mediterranean, founding trading colonies across the basin, including Carthage, which we'll come to. And they also traded in purple dye. You know, they boiled down these murex sea snail shells to extract this really rich purple color that would be used for the robes of emperors for generations to come. You know, we think of Uh, theodora and justinian and and ravenna and san vitale wearing these purple robes that this this color came from tyre so it's this phenomenally wealthy phoenician city-state that is conquered many times over the years and eventually by alexander who as you've mentioned it holds him up for a while and he ends up constructing a land bridge between the mainland and the island to march his troops over and that land bridge never eroded. And it and ever since Alexander's siege, Tyre has been connected to the mainland on this sort of, you know, by this isthmus. And it's now a peninsula rather than an island. It's 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 an amazingly beautiful place, even though it's now connected. You still have this feeling of being surrounded by the sea when you're there. And there's just antiquity everywhere, you know, it's not curated, it's not, you know, there are some archaeological sites that are well taken care of, but others aren't. And you can just be walking around the coast and you'll see a Roman column sticking up out of the sea. Um it's amazing, just the, the amount of history that's there. You can really feel it as you walk around. It's, it's one of my favourite places on Earth.
0: Well, that was possibly the most interesting thing in the book in terms of modern travel, the idea that you can go swimming and diving and see if you can find anything from the ancient past on the seabed.
1: Yeah, and you can. I mean, you have to throw it back, of course. Um, <laughs> but, you know, even just if you go out for a swim with some goggles you'll find the handle of an amphora just buried in the sand because much of Tyre's archaeology is under the water. And actually, it's British archaeologists that are, or British archaeological foundations that are continuing many of these underwater excavations. But this area of coastline, both Israel, uh, both Lebanon and further south in Israel, there's so much history off the coast. Like One of the big discoveries in archaeology last year, I think, that made, that made headlines was someone just found a crusader sword sticking out of the sticking out of the seabed just off the yeah. coast of near, near Acre which is just a stone's throw from Tyre so there is just so much so much history so easily accessible and visible off this bit of coast it's it's really incredible
0: and so if someone was uh, going to uh, visit Tyre tomorrow what would you recommend they do
1: Oh, well, I mean, mainly just walk walk around the sea road because that's stunning. But from a historical perspective, there are two brilliant archaeological sites, entirely Al-Mina archaeological site and the Hippodrome. Um, they're, These two, they're sprawling. So take some time and wear a hat. But, um, but yeah, the, it's got one of the remains of one of the biggest hippodromes of the ancient world, the Roman Hippodrome in the southern archaeological site, which is adjacent to a, um, a Phoenician a Phoenician Necropolis with also Roman and Greek tombs. So you can really see the developments and the successive cultures that have lived entire over the years in that site. but Also at the almina archaeological site, it's just beautiful. It's right on the sea. And you have this great white Roman road uh, with columns alongside it, like a colonnaded street leading out to the sea. And it's it's stunning. And then you also have, you know, there's a square, sort of sunken arena which archaeologists think may have been used to sort of, they may have filled it up with water and reenacted sea battles there. So that's fascinating. And you have sort of the remains of Roman sort of glass furnaces as well in that site. So there's so many layers there. But more interestingly, actually, is the archaeological site that isn't yet sort of curated and open to the public, because there are ongoing archaeological excavations in Tyre. And one of the most recent, and right next to the Crusader Cathedral, actually, so the reason I went to Tyre was to see what was left of William of Tyre's Cathedral in Tyre. And there's there's you can definitely make out the floor plan, and there are columns still raised there. It's very interesting. And immediately and it's very atmospheric, I like to imagine. And William of Tyre is in there somewhere under all that mess. Um, but immediately adjacent, there's this new excavation going on, led by universities of Warsaw and Barcelona, um, to excavate. They found a new Roman temple, essentially. And they haven't found an inscription or anything, but all the clues are pointing to that maybe it's the temple of Melkart of Heracles Melkart, because it's a temple dating from the Roman times, but built in a Canaanite Phoenician style with a sort of subterranean tomb, which may be used for the ritual of the Aegisus of Melkart. So that's it's so interesting, and that's that's history and archaeology really as it's happening. You know, discover new. You know, every summer the archaeologists are back there. And that discover new discoveries are being made all the time, so it's it's really interesting.
0: Ah, uh, it sounds it. it 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 makes me excited to visit more places, and um, Tyre just sounds particularly rich. Um, so you've already uh kind of told the story that obviously uh, Phoenician traders are the ones who founded Carthage, um, which is the next city in the book, and is obviously very familiar to listeners of this podcast. Um the uh, inveterate enemy of Rome during the Republican period and then uh, visited by uh, Belisarius during Justinian's reconquest. Um, I was also amused to read that in 1985, the mayors of Carthage and Rome finally signed a peace treaty, <laughs> ending the Third Punic War.
1: Yeah, it had... <laughs> was never formally, never formally ended until until the 20th century, so on it raged, yeah.
0: <laughs> I really like that detail, but um when uh, would you say carthage's heyday was was what we would think of it the roman period
1: i mean yeah sort of 4th century bc when it is one of the largest metropolises in the world and it's sort of it's ruling and expanding the carthaginian empire which dominates you know central mediterranean and as we know was a major rival of rome so that's really the golden age for carthage um yeah
0: but uh why don't you tell the listeners something they won't know about uh Carthage to uh, get them to uh, check out the book.
1: Well, you have really educated listeners, so I'm not gonna I'm not going to um, presume what they do and don't know. But I'll, I won't talk to you about the Punic Wars because I'm sure that's been well well trodden. Um, what I but what I did try to do in my book is look less at the campaigns in Italy and Sicily. And my book, great, because my book is about Carthage, I mean, this section is about the city of Carthage itself. So when I do talk about the Punic Wars, I actually give more attention, perhaps than usual, to the periods in between the wars um, and to the wars on Carthaginian soil, rather than focusing so much on the great victories in Italy and the battle for Sicily. But obviously that's important. I do bring that in. Um, I think, you know, things that interested me a lot in the history of Carthage Well, I mean, and also in the modern day, I mean, the Barbary Wars around Tunis, fascinating. But going further back, because that's really my my, my milieu, I was very interested in the foundation myths of Carthage. We all know about Dido, um, Dido and Aeneas of Virgil and Virgil fame. But I was interested in unpacking the myth of Dido and learning the other perspectives, because there are other versions of this narrative which don't end with Aeneas rocking up in Carthage and then seducing Dido and then swanning off to found Rome, leading her to kill herself. The story of Dido, of Alyssa, the Phoenician name, coming to found Carthage is, I think, more interesting from, from the other through the other versions in which Aeneas doesn't feature at all. You know, this is part of the Roman propaganda and building this myth of ancient enmity between Carthage and Rome. Um, but in the other version of the myth, Alyssa does still kill herself by self-immolation. She still throws herself on the funeral pyre. But in, instead, it's actually to avoid being forced to marry uh, a North African lord that she doesn't want to marry because she's so dedicated to the legacy of her, of her and the memory of her dead husband. So, I mean, in brief, you know, Alyssa fled Tyre because her twin brother assassinated her husband and was trying to steal his wealth. And Dido wasn't safe either. Dido is the name she's given later. It means wanderer but her original Phoenician name is Alyssa. So Alyssa did not believe she was safe and tired, put to to sea with some loyal comrades, picked up some women in Cyprus, whether voluntarily or not, it's not clear, and then made this new colony on the shore of North Africa. And this is, of course, a myth, but it's certainly true that Carthage was founded by Phoenician settlers. So I sort of examine those foundation myths and different reasons and elements of them. But then also... What I think is very interesting is that for many people who especially especially those who consider Carthage through the lens of Roman history, many people believe that you know you hear the myth of the salt, the plains of Carthage being sown with salt to stop anything growing again. That's a complete fabrication. And many people believe that the history of Carthage ends with the complete destruction of the city by Rome at the end of the Third Punic War. But this is not the case. you know, the strategic location of Carthage slightly off center in the Mediterranean and with this perfect positioning to control trade both east to west and north to south. Rome couldn't just abandon that location and let it become an overgrown pile of stones. It was a very important strategic location. So actually not so long after the destruction of Carthage, it was refounded as a Roman colony and had the second life as an important Roman centre in North Africa and as a very important centre of early Christianity. So, I mean, the story and the stories that I found very interesting were the stories of St. Perpetua and Felicity in Carthage, Um, you know, St. Perpetua is a Roman girl born towards. I think she's born in something like 182 AD and she comes of age, you know, probably, you know, 210 AD, something like that. I'm a bit hazy on precise dates, but it's around then. And she's asked to make a sacrifice to the emperor at the time, who is Septimus Severus, and she refuses the grounds that she's converted to christianity the only person in her family she's married with a child her husband is a pagan her family are pagans but she's converted to christianity and she won't make the sacrifice and she's imprisoned to await trial and execution and what's remarkable is that while she's imprisoned she writes a diary that we still that survives you know that we still have the content of it survived in copies down the generations and it's a really human piece of literature you know she talks about the the horrible conditions in the prison, feeling afraid. She talks about her faith. She talks about you know her breasts hurting because she's been separated from her infant child and she can't breastfeed. And it's it's really fascinating as a piece of literature and an insight into the life and education of a woman in a, in a North African Roman city. And it's yeah, it's a it's a really moving story. And then eventually she is thrown to the beasts in the arena. Um, And you can still visit that Roman amphitheater now where St. Perpetua and St. Felicity alongside the others, the other martyrs were killed that day. So it's really interesting. And then additionally, looking at early Christianity in Carthage, you know, St. Augustine was there. And he actually, you know, when you think about the Christianization of the Roman world and the violence of it, you know, we have St. Augustine actively preaching for the Christians in Carthage to rise up and destroy the pagan temples and then we have great quotes from letters from St. Augustine, sort of saying, Oh, where is the power of Celestis now? Where is the power of Saturn now? You know, Christianity has triumphed. And they had, because Carthage retained very strong links to Tyre over the centuries and the ancient Phoenician gods, they have this temple dedicated to Heracles Melcart with this statue with a golden beard. And every year there's this ceremony where they regild the beard of this god. And under St. Augustine, they go and they shave the statue and hack off this golden beard to sort of humiliate the pagan community. So it's a very interesting place for early, for studies of early Christianity. And yeah, just, it's, it's a really, it's had, it's had a long afterlife after the Punic Wars is what I would say.
0: Yeah. It's, it's such an interesting history, religiously going from you discuss pagan sacrifice and then the Roman era and then the Christian era and then the Muslim era and so on. Um,
1: what they fight over the you know and this is still politicized because in carthage one of the few remaining uh sites from the phoenician the punic period is the tophet of carthage this essentially a graveyard for very young babies and it's debate it's hotly debated whether this this burial ground is evidence of widespread practice of child sacrifice or whether it's just a graveyard for premature and stillborn children um i i'm inclined towards the former but it has become politicized this debate Well, you know either way so it's 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 really interesting and there are there are new discoveries and new questions being raised all the time
0: absolutely so if someone visits today uh what would you recommend they go and see
1: oh there's so much to see in carthage and i'm glad you've said this because a friend of mine who used to live in tunis like, i went to carthage once and there was nothing there it's just all rocks so it's like what? <laughs> well there are a lot of old rocks i will say that but the archaeological sites are very impressive you know we have rome but they are mostly roman is what i would say very little has survived from punic carthage as archaeological sites but obviously there are many artifacts in the museum on bursa hill bursa hill is where you must visit this is i mean in the ancient foundation myth this is the ancient center of carthage that dido claimed with her ox hide to make the center of her city um, and so it's a hill as the name suggests and now it has a christian cathedral on the top and the tomb of saint louis louis the seventh ill-fated crusader etc and so on died in tunisia but this was the ancient center of roman and punic carthage so and it's just the views are incredible so that's the first thing but then around bursa hill around the ancient sites of carthage you have the antonine bards which i think are some of the most impressive roman bath complexes one of the most impressive Roman bath complexes remaining in the world you have the remains of Roman villas you have the amphitheater where Saint Perpetua was killed there are many sites around Carthage I yeah and the Tophet the Tophet is perhaps the most mysterious and interesting um and it's a strong link with the Punic past so that's interesting
0: fantastic um well let's move on to Syracuse where your journey began and uh I believe you're going back there uh, soon to to talk about the book. So um, Syracuse has played a part in Byzantine history, but um, uh, southern Italy and Sicily is always a bit of a side story for the Byzantines, but it, it has come up enough. Um, people know where it is. People know uh, Belisarius capturing Sicily. But um, talk about Syracuse's uh, heyday, which was, I suspect, before that.
1: Yeah, it was, but you really must do an episode on Euphemius in Syracuse. That's a great little Byzantine anecdote that you definitely need to to, to share with your listeners because it's it's really rich and it's very exciting and it involves involves I think a Byzantine governor eloping or kidnapping a nun and then you know it all, it's it's it all kicks off with Euphemius. <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> but Syracuse's heyday is long before that, alas, alack um it's sort of roughly third century bc so you know we usually say that the the golden age of syracuse it was sort of the most populous greek city in the world around sort of 250 bc that's around when archimedes so archimedes is from syracuse so it has various periods of power and cultural flourishing so um agathocles of syracuse is, is a tyrant who takes you know he captures a lot of italy and north africa he's he's an incredibly um strong military ruler, so they're there and Gelon the first tyrant of Syracuse also you know you could argue that's the golden age of the city but really for me one of the most interesting times is Syracuse under under the the ruler here on the second who is this great patron of arts and sciences and supports Archimedes early career and encourages him to turn from sort of theoretical studies to practical studies so def- using his great mind for sort of defense and engineering Rather than just for mathematical theories, um, and he's he's depicted. And the Indiana Jones franchise agrees with me. This is the most interesting part of Syracuse's history. The new the new Indiana Jones film is very Archimedes and Syracuse focused. And uh, no spoilers, but the the Roman siege of Syracuse um, plays plays a good role in that film. I, I was surprising watching. I enjoyed it. <laughs> but yeah, the, the golden age. There are many, and also Plato was in Syracuse. So Syracuse is the place where Plato tried to trot out his idea of the philosopher king. He tried to educate the tyrants of Syracuse in the tenets of philosophy to try and create these really just rulers, these philosopher kings with very limited success, very limited success. Um, And people have also argued that it's where Plato was inspired for the allegory of the cave because in Syracuse, they have this sort of evil tradition of keeping their prisoners and their cave complexes where they'd be chained up and they would just see the shadows on the outside as their only glimpse of light in the outside world. So it's really interesting in this as a city of ideas and inspiration. But yeah, really, I mean, I talk about Archimedes and his inventions. So when you have the Roman siege of Syracuse, which I'm sure your listeners have come across, you have these myths of Archimedes' great heat ray burning Roman vessels out of the water by sort of using mirrors and magnifying lenses to use the power of the sun to burn ships out of the water. Um, the great grappling claw that could theoretically lift triremes right out of the waves. This is all really interesting. And this has not been definitively proven, but it is a time of brilliance in Syracuse because, you know, Archimedes is screw. Um, it's sort of like a hydraulic screw system which can draw water up a tube. That was a very important invention for agriculture and engineering. Then we have his other inventions. So we have the, you know, the Syracusea. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Your Greek listeners I really apologize. But he created Archimedes developed one of the biggest ships, the biggest trade ships of antiquity with sort of a marble temple within it's sort of like the Titanic luxury yacht of of the ancient world um, and was so brilliant and did not sink. But he got his calculations slightly off in that while he created this amazing trade ship that could travel across the Mediterranean, it was so big that there were only two harbors in the entire Mediterranean big enough to accommodate it. So it could really only ever go between Syracuse and Alexandria. And on its first voyage from Syracuse to Alexandria, Ptolemy, the pharaoh in Egypt at this time, decides he didn't want to let it sail back to Syracuse and hauled it out of the water and use it as like a palace slash museum. So it only sailed once. But it's this time of invention and cultural flourishing in when Syracuse is probably at its most, most powerful, most wealthy in the lead up to the Roman sack of Syracuse which eventually unfortunately ends in the death of archimedes sort of inadvertently by a rogue roman soldier but yeah really interesting place
0: yeah it's amazing how each of these places is involved in kind of all the big stories of of the ancient and medieval worlds um and obviously syracuse is involved in the great um wars between athens and sparta and um Peloponnesian Wars and so on. Yeah
1: I mean I'd say I would say the defining moment of the Peloponnesian Wars was in the harbour of Syracuse not in Athens or Sparta you know it's the destruction of this Athenian fleet in the Syracuse that really paved the way for the decline of Athens in the Mediterranean so yeah.
0: Absolutely um, and in terms of places to visit today you talk about going to see performances of Greek tragedies in the in the theatre there.
1: Yes, the legacy lives on. I mean, the Greek theatre in Syracuse, I think, is, is probably the best preserved Greek theatre in the world. It's in amazing condition, and it's huge and impressive, and it's beautiful. Um, and beyond that, yes, they use they they do revivals of the Greek tragedies every year, every summer. So I've seen I've seen um, you know the back the Bacchanalia. I've seen uh, I've I've seen a lot there, but it's 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 a stunning experience. It really it really comes to life, and they really respect the tradition there. And then in terms of what else to visit, the ear of Dionysius, again, in, now of Indiana Jones fame. But this is this amazing cave where, you know, myth has it that this is where the Athenian prisoners were held after. I mean, it's possible there are two cave complexes and it could be it could be the Latomi as well. But the ear of Dionysius is called this because, you know, according to myth, legend, the Athenian prisoners were kept in the back of the cave and the acoustics in it meant that anything they were saying could be heard by the guards um, because it echoes round this sort of amazing bend in the cave. And you can, if you whisper at the very back, you can hear it like a shout at the front. So it's, and it's just, it's beautiful. And again, it has this amazing atmosphere of history. You can, you, you very much feel like you're standing in an ancient place. It's very, it's, it's moving, I would say. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Well, I'm sure we could talk about Syracuse a lot more but uh, let's let's move on I feel people will travel to Italy and Sicily so it needs less uh, selling from us Um, the next capital further north is Ravenna Uh, very familiar to listeners of the history of Byzantium and the history of Rome Um, was obviously the Roman imperial capital um, as the empire uh, began to stumble Uh, would that be Ravenna's heyday
1: yeah, I mean, I love how you say began to stumble. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, Ravenna's Ravenna's heyday is between the fifth and eighth centuries. Um, yeah, follow. I mean, when Honorius moves the capital there, the the era of Gala Placidia, hugely important. Of course, Byzantine reconquest, Belisarius, Justinian, Theodora these amazing proliferation of early Christian art mosaics across the city is beautiful. And then also under Theodoric, you know, and that, you know, it's a very, yeah, it's, it retains a lot of importance throughout that period. Um, But I then, you know, so that's all very interesting. And that's, I think that's all very familiar to your listeners. So I won't, I won't talk too much about that, but what I, what I do try to shine a light on is again, the afterlife of Ravenna. It's, it's, it's the continuation of its history in later centuries. So the Battle of Ravenna, for one, Gasson of Foix, but also, again, looking at, at looking at it as a cultural centre. You know, it's where Dante spent his final years composing Paradiso. It's where Byron had his, you know, spent his last time before the Greek Wars of Independence, where he died, had his last great love affair with um, the Countess Guiccioli, and composed a lot of Don Juan and other amazing poetry, It's also it's and the art in Ravenna has inspired artists and writers and philosophers down the generations. So, you know, Klimt was inspired for his golden period by the art in Ravenna. Um, And I think it was Jung. Yeah, Jung went there and was so moved by the mosaics that left him having hallucinations. And he gave lectures to his students about mosaics in Ravenna that people then went to find and found they didn't exist. He'd been so sort of swept up in the beauty of the place that he he had these hallucinations that he truly believed were real. So it's it's a fascinating city that has continued as a cultural center um, for years following, and you know it's 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 important not just for its Byzantine heyday, um, but also yeah in, in later centuries as well. And it's it's a very historically rich city, and I, I really recommend uh, listeners visit because it's very easy to visit, um, and you will not be disappointed. In fact, you'll be pleasantly surprised because there's it's a city that has a very quiet exterior. You know, modest red brick buildings could, you know, when you walk through the centre, you know, it could be any city in, in northern Italy. And then you enter these buildings and there's this this golden history written across the ceilings. And it's it's incredible.
0: Yeah. Well, I started this by saying you and I were the kind of people who could look at a few stones on the ground and, and talk about how great it was to be in a place. Um, having done some tours around Turkey, I know that not everyone feels that way. Uh, some okay. people want buildings to still <laughs> stand and uh, they want look, to blame. Yeah, look like they did exactly so of all these capitals would you say Ravenna is the one with the sort of most complete looking historical buildings?
1: Um, It would be between Ravenna and Syracuse because Syracuse the the Greek remains are great and the like I said the era of Dionysius is just very impressive and there's and just and Sicily is you know Syracuse is just beautiful so Sicily I'd say there's more The scale in Syracuse is greater in terms of the Greek theatre is huge. The cave systems are very interesting. There are Greek tunnels under the city. There's the castle of Euryalus just outside an ancient Greek fortress. Syracuse has good ruins in good nick. But Ravenna, it's the art. So, yes, we still have these amazing buildings from the Byzantine period, And in terms of for intricate beauty, there's nothing to rival them. I mean, the mausoleum of Sidia is not where she's actually buried, but that is just stunning. It will take your breath away. And, you know, it's still in as brilliant condition as it was in ancient times, well, late late ancient times. And the uh, the sophistication of it, it's just beautiful. I'm trying to think, you know, you couldn't do better in the modern day, really. It's just stunning. So yes, if you want to really see the grandeur of Byzantine art I don't think there's any better place to see it than in in Ravenna yeah
0: yeah and just in case anyone has forgotten that is where you can see Justinian and Theodora
1: yeah Um, Theodora with her girl squad and um in all their imperial finery yeah it's it's really stunning
0: fantastic well that brings us to the final city and um for for good reasons and very very sad reasons it's it's familiar it's Antioch um which has obviously played uh, played a massive role in in Byzantine history and Crusader history, and of course, tragically, has been flattened again by an earthquake. Um, and listeners can go and listen to our episode on that if they want to donate to the relief effort. Um, when when is Antioch's heyday? I imagine that one was difficult to choose.
1: That one is difficult to choose i mean you could either you know it's period as the capital of seleucid empire is obviously a strong a strong contender but also you know as a greek city you know so in this greek period but then also as the capital of sort of roman syria it's also incredibly important and you have emperors holidaying there you know we talked about in well not holidaying but you headquartering sorry that's a complete unfair statement um and in the episode on the earthquake we talked about you know trajan being, living there when an earthquake struck and having to escape out the window. Other emperors very much held court there. It was a very important center. And then again, as as discussed, I mean, this is actually what drew me to the podcast, Robin. I was researching Antioch and I discovered your podcast on the C- your extended podcast on the C- <laughs> of Antioch, um, and it's what got me listening and got us in touch. And so yeah, again, becomes you know a very important frontier crusader principality in the high mid- in the in the Middle Ages. So it, it has argued, arguably has three golden ages that each extend a couple of centuries in some cases. So it's really hard to pin that down. Um, but as I say, a city rich for layers of history.
0: Absolutely. Um, can you can you tell the listeners something they, they won't know from the pre-Roman period?
1: Okay, well, again, Antioch is a city that's been well covered in your podcast and others. So I'm sure listeners are familiar with a lot of its history. But one fun fact I came across while researching was that, according to Labanius, uh, a great orator who wrote a lot, who was a native of Antioch and wrote a lot about the city and gave very good descriptions of it. So we can help that help us visualize the city at that time. He also wrote about the foundation of the city and the planning of the city. And he said that the way that Seleucus planned the city that was named in honour of his father Antiochus was he stationed his war elephants around the edges of where he wanted the city to be built, and just told the builders, "Right, wherever there's an elephant, build a tower there." So I liked that the yeah. elephant played a key part in the the urban planning of Antioch. But I think one of the things that I found most interesting about Antioch in all its in all its iterations. It's just how diverse the city has always been so you know it was founded by seleucus Nicator in the what you know in the wake of alexander's and you know following alexander's conquests and when it was origin and so the original inhabitants of the city were yes a large amount of macedonians from seleucus's army but also you know it's also recorded that among them and among the armies and the people who settled there were cypriots cretans and argives many native Syrians, but also Athenians and Jewish settlers. And they 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 established their own community. So it was always a multicultural and multilingual city. And this has carried on down the centuries. I mean, it's, sometimes it's hard to find, but, you know, I was looking at sort of 18th century, 19th century travel writing from people who went to Antioch. And we had these really interesting descriptions of being hosted by people from different communities. So even in Ottoman Antioch, you have a, quite a, a wealthy Christian community in Antioch. And that's continued to today. I mean, the well, no longer today until prior to the February 6th earthquakes, which have changed everything. But there was still a Jewish community in that city that dated back thousands of years to the city's foundation. Um, I think there was something, there were 12 or 15 Jewish families or Jewish people remaining in Antioch today, but there was still a functioning synagogue that was very much part of the community. And likewise, the Greek Orthodox Church had a large community, major building, also a Protestant church operated by a church in Korea, so it's always been very diverse. And even until recently, Antioch had this very famous multi-faith choir that was actually nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize a few years ago that incorporated people of many different faiths and sects that sang hymns from all the religions together and in different languages. So I think, and Antioch, what made visiting Antioch special in the modern day was this sense of warmth and of welcoming um and of diversity which has just been a continuous feature i mean even today antioch antakya to the extent that it still remains is a bilingual city you know people speak both arabic and turkish and i think as far back as its its original foundation there's always been this babel of different languages in the streets it's always been this this crossing place on this trade route the the big the the gateway to the levant and it's yeah that that i think was one of the most striking things both in the research and in experiencing visiting the place myself, was the diversity.
0: Absolutely, and I I believe there is some um, crumbs of comfort in terms of um, the mosaic museum um, in Antakya managed to survive the earthquake. Yeah,
1: indeed, indeed. So I think most of the most of the treasures of the ancient world have been preserved still because by simply by virtue of the fact that they survived all the other earthquakes that have happened, the remnants of antiquity that survived the previous earthquakes survived this one as well. So, you know, Ottoman buildings, beautiful buildings built in the last two, three hundred years, many of those did not survive. But the Roman and Greek mosaics did survive, Roman mosaics primarily, but Roman mosaics, I think, mainly have survived, the Iron Gate of Antioch survived. The Cave Church of Saint Peter survived. So, but yes, the Greek Orthodox Church, more recently built, did not, um, and much of the old city did not. Um, but everything that goes much further back, I think, did did stand, did survive. Yeah,
0: yeah. And though it's not easy, you can make arrangements to visit and and put some money into the into the relief effort that way. I know you you had contacts. I and don't know. Talk to
1: I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I would say I don't think it's still a time that people can visit for sort of tourism purposes. Yeah, because it's still very much a disaster zone. Um, but I'd say in you know soon it will be possible to visit again. But yeah, go yeah. Um, but it's I don't you know it's certainly not ready to receive um uh, international visitors generally speaking yet. You know when I went it was very much you sleep in the car. Yeah and that sort of thing so because that's
0: great, yeah. that's a very interesting part of the book and and we talked about that in our previous episode but we we encourage people to contribute to the relief effort um Catherine yeah. thank you so much for coming on the podcast um I think anyone who's interested in Mediterranean history and travel will absolutely love it um it's it's covering the familiar and the unfamiliar for listeners of this podcast and uh, it's a really enjoyable read.
1: Thank you so much, Robin. It's been great to come on and discuss it with you. Thank you.